Hey folks, Charles Maxwood. I am back at Swamp Up. I'm talking to Nati Davidi. Nati, you gave a talk earlier today as part of the keynote. You were talking about all of the security offerings that you've built into the advanced security features for JFrog. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll just talk about security here for, for a few minutes and just kind of give people an idea of how they should think about security and, and where they can take it from there and things like that. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through m- most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. Sure. So I'm uh, Nati Davidi. Nati is short for Nathaniel, by the way. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Coming here from Israel, where I manage the uh, security division, the relatively new security division of JFrog mm-hmm. that was built through the acquisition of uh, Vidu, the startup company that I established and uh, CEO'd uh, beforehand. And uh, generally speaking, I'm coming uh, from uh, cybersecurity background, from endpoint security, network security, uh, forensic investigations, embedded security, oh, wow. and of course, binary security, which is the forte of what we bring to the table. Right. And yeah, so during your talk, you were talking about, and I think you started out by saying that if you don't own it or don't control it, you can't secure it, right? Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. So do you want to talk about that idea for a minute? Just what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, you know, when I look back on the last 15 years of developing security products for enterprise, the thing that I saw again and again is that you can have the best security capabilities in terms of analysis or examination capabilities, but you need to be able to impose them on something properly, mm-hmm. meaning you can have the best antivirus or can have the best firewall, but if your antivirus will not cover all of the endpoints or your firewall will not be connected to all of your sub-networks, then you have this missed point that will never be able to be protected and through right. that, the attacker will come in. Same goes for software supply chain, same goes for software development lifecycle. You need to be everything almost hermetically managed and governed and controlled and monitored in a way that you can not only recognize and identify things when they happen, but you can take action across the board immediately. And by using the term own it, we mean that you own the assets, that you own the process, that you own the automation of it. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So effectively, what you're saying is, yes, do the other things that you kind of do for security, right? Where you're securing, how do I put it? The parts of the application that are not your application, I guess. And then make sure that your application is also secure. Make sure that you've firmed, firmed up everything that you can firm up on your own end so that at the end of the day, it's as secure as it can be. Correct. So it's uh, it has uh, these two aspects, I mean, of, again, control your own code, control it are things that are coming from the outside into your organization and are being embedded into your right. software. But then, of course, also control it afterwards when it, it become part of the production environment and being able to trace it and being able to know what's going on from the dev- all the way from the developer into the edge, into the servers, into the services that are being served right. to the customers. So how do you do that? 
I mean, to a certain degree, it's okay. You know, I'll install. I, I'm a developer. I, I write web software and Ruby on Rails. So I'll I'll try and use sources that I trust. You know, and I'll try and be careful about what I bring in. But the thing is, and this is something we discuss much more in the JavaScript world than the Ruby world, is my dependencies have dependencies, have dependencies, yep. have dependencies, have dependencies. Yep. And so I just can't know. I guess I can know if I want to spend all of the time it would take to know. I can know everything that's coming into my app, but it's just not really feasible. And then the the other thing is, is that you never know what's actually going to come at your application anyway. So so how do you start to get your head around, okay, what, what are the right practices for this as far as making sure that my application, I don't want to say impenetrable, but is as close to that as I can yeah. get it. Yeah, it, it, can be, it can be bulletproof, of course, right. but, uh, but you want to do the best you can. And in a way that will not impact your time to market, of right. course, uh, which is another challenge. So uh, we believe that the best approach is to do it in every possible opportunity, meaning right. from the very beginning, trying to identify the potential vulnerabilities and reduce them mm -hmm. when you start develop, when you work uh, through the IDE. And then later, in any possible gate, it can be when you compile your code into binary, it can be when you take your binary and make it part of a build or part of a container or part of right. a virtual machine. It's when you create your nightly builds or your testing builds or when you start to uh, push it into the field. And even after the fact, when it is already in your services, in your device, you want to do a post-mortem <laughs> uh, uh -huh. check to make sure that, that things are just as you expect them to be. Now, to your point about the challenge around dependencies, it's definitely there. And this is definitely what we're trying to solve. And we try to do it in an automate, fully automated manner. We are checking mm -hmm. dependencies for you. We are doing it uh, immediately after your code become a binary, or if it's a package that comes in the form of binary, we will scan it for you. But we need we need to put an end to it because it's truly endless. I mean, you need uh -huh. to decide to what level of dependencies you look into, right? And what would you, should you take care of because it's not all yours. Most of it is not yours. Right. You do not have control of tens of maintainers when you do all these dependencies per one package. Right. So we have a, a smart engine to prioritize the issue, and of course, the far that you, as far if you go more, uh, the distance of going uh, with the dependencies also have an impact in the calculation of what the risk is. And we believe that we came with the right balance of uh, analyzing those uh, binaries. One more thing is that we are doing it not only by looking into the metadata of the package mm -hmm. or the binary, which is the common approach. Uh, you know, looking to the package manager or the data that comes with the package itself, we are doing yeah. a true binary analysis, meaning that our scanners will decompile and to some extent even reverse engineer when it is allowed and feasible, the binary to find, to find things that are not accessible through metadata. Okay. And that also allows us to do the contextual analysis and tell you we do not care about this dependency because it, it allegedly there, but no one is really calling this specific function or right. the specific library. This, this is the kind of the approach. Is It's not, again, it's not bulletproof, but it is far beyond what is being done today. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I mean, typically what will happen, at least in my world, is somebody will find a vulnerability in there, right? So, you know, somebody's graciously decided to take over a package that everybody's using and then has decided maliciously to insert some code into it, right? Or there's some dependency on a third-party binary library, you know, a C library that's compiled that you can call into or, I mean, any number of other things, right? And, you know, so we find out that these issues happen later, right? And then, yeah, some security scanners will add it to their list and, you know, find it for you. But th that's typically where it comes in, in, you know, into my realm, right? Yeah. And so ha having something will automatically scan it, you know, pull things apart and kind of, you know, go a little deeper. That, that sounds really, really handy. 
Yeah, and to your point, you know, if, if I try to uh, divide it between the, uh, let's call it the known and the unknown, mm -hmm. there is one effort that uh, we focus on, which is collecting the known, meaning the known uh, malicious packages that are there, right. known CVEs, known other security issues. Right. And we, on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, sometimes push them to our databases so our customers can find these issues. But with these scanners, we provide our customers with the ability to find malicious, let's call it malicious behavior and bad stuff themselves, meaning that if there is a given package that mm -hmm. our research arm didn't scan for malicious activity, but the customer still use, now the customer will be able to scan a given package that we are not right. aware of as a research arm, which is a more unique one, or even his first party code, right. to know if there is malicious behavior, what malicious behavior it, it, it can be. Just for an example, there is no, in some circumstances, there is no reason to co of code obfuscating itself. Mm -hmm. This is a behavior of uh, crypto miners. This right. is a behavior of uh, ransomwares. Mm -hmm. So we identify it in the binary, and again, without having the source code, yeah. uh, which is, which is a, a great achievement from te technology point of view. And we are going to add more and more capabilities to cover that. So both aggregating the information about the known stuff and providing scanners to find the unknown stuff. Right. And, and I kind of see this as part of the shift left. You mentioned CVEs as another area, right? I don't want to go spend all my time on OWASP. I just, I don't, right? I'm busy. I want to make features that make people happy, right? And so that, that's just another feature on this where it's, hey, you know, you're using this library framework, you know, system, whatever it is. Hey, there was this security vulnerability that was found and it may have been there the whole time, may have been a zero day last week, right? But it's, okay, we know about this now and getting that heads up, just, it's yeah. so handy. Yeah, so, so there, are, there are two things that uh, we try to, to, uh, to tackle here first is to bring this information as soon as possible, of course, as, as, I mean, as soon as the information become public. And again, mm -hmm. we are closing the loop within one hour, two hours from the reveal of new zero days to make sure this information uh, uh, is accessible. And the other thing is that the other thing that we provide uh, the ability of the customers, again, finding the, the thing themselves. But yeah, I, I just see that as really handy. And I remember I started to get into, okay, you know, how, how do I become a hacker, you know? And yeah, I remember like CVEs, if, if it was something that was out there, they had they had scripts, right? They didn't have to understand the exploit. Yeah. They just had to have the yeah. code that would exploit it. Correct. Right. And so that that's where you run into trouble, right? And I've I've heard some people also mention, well, I'm too small for it to happen to me. Well, if you're small, the, they're counting on you not finding it. Absolutely. So so it really does kind of hit everybody. I want to change gears a little bit because another one that you mentioned, and this is something that I've seen like GitHub Security Bot and some others, you know, catch some of this. They, they tend to look in the more obvious places, but it was your secrets, right? You mentioned that your secrets might be exposed in there, right? Correct, and, yeah. and yeah, I don't particularly want anyone exploiting my Stripe keys to charge people's credit cards. So yeah, I kind of felt that, you know, a little bit in my core as I was going, yeah, that could be bad. Yeah, absolutely. that could be real bad. Yeah, and and this is the this again, this is part of the small things that are almost always there that the developers yeah. are forgetting or you know or the user are forgetting. I've when done they're it, and you have done it, and you saw it. Uh, so yes, we we want to be able to find it for you. And again, the challenge I mentioned earlier today, the challenge there is that typical tools that are looking for uh, secrets will be based on a heuristic approach that mm -hmm. are looking for the patterns of how username, password look like or how a sequence right. of key look like. And this generates tons of false positives. Yeah. What we did is to do it in a way that we look for very specific patterns of specific products. And by that, we reduce the false positives to almost right. minimal and we just provide it on the spot. And again, what we revealed 
earlier today, this morning, is that by scanning 8 million artifacts in common repositories, mm-hmm. we found thousands of thousands of uh, active tokens that can be exploited right now. I mean, right. we clearly help the developers, the maintainers to fix it. But this is amazing to see how it's just happening. No one right. even know about it because no one is officially responsible for it. It's not the CISO stuff. It's not AppSec uh, security necessarily. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that we are going to solve. And I just one, one quick addition to your point about dealing with CVEs as a developer, the point that I wanted to raise earlier. What we heard the most from developer that we uh, talked with about dealing with CVEs and software bill of material requirements that are coming through regulation now is that every time the security teams are coming with their requirements, the developer is usually very smart or she's very smart. They know there are many CVEs there that should not be fixed immediately, that someone right. is creating panics just because there is an alleged vulnerability there. Mm-hmm. What we are doing now for the first time is looking into the binary level and checking things beyond the vulnerable package to tell you, taking in consideration everything that you built, for example, looking into your container, we are taking into account your first party code when we analyze the CVE to oh, tell you wow. if you call the specific vulnerable function. Right. And then I'm able to tell you, listen, you do have log4j, you use the library. Right. You do use it, but I just checked and it seems like you are using the right function, which is not vulnerable. Right. And you're not using the vulnerable. Or I can tell you, you use the vulnerable function, just switch it to the other function without even upgrading your package. Right. And you are safe. You don't need to check to, uh, to change it across your entire Oh, that's board. handy. And that, that, that's very <laughs> powerful for the oh, developer. Yeah. And now imagine what happens if I also capable of telling you in production, you do have log4j in these 10,000 nodes, but only these 30 nodes, you have it loaded into the memory and right. it used the vulnerable function. And this is the next steps of what we're going to offer. Very cool. Very cool. So let's say that I've got this scanning running, right? You know, I'm getting notified of CVEs. It's, you know, it's finding other malicious or vulnerable code. It's, it's, it's pulling all the secrets out. I mean, what, what are the problems am I going to run into? So first, I believe that organizations that use such a comprehensive solution need to decide on responsibilities because there are many things that uh, will be identified by these scanners and there will always be the question, is it the responsibility of the developer or the security teams now to solve it or the DevOps because there are many tasks that are not that are in between security right. and DevOps. So first, there need to be an ownership on who, who is running that, who is deciding what policies should be enforced, what packages am I blocking mm-hmm. based on what attributes so this is one thing and the second thing is to stick with the prioritization that is being suggested by advanced security package meaning here it's a matter of trust in the platform right. because when when the system will tell you you have 30 exposures in your uh, open source libraries not CVEs but secure other secure configuration issues for an example I could see my boss freaking out right yeah now, right? exactly exactly but then we need to provide you with the ability to tell your boss, listen, we have 30 issues. Mm-hmm. Here are the evidences of why only three of them need to be fixed in the next right. version. Because they are, they are the only three that are exploitable. Right. The rest I'm planning for the version next year, the beginning of next year, because right. there is no way to exploit it. Not only that, you will be able to tell your boss or developers or DevOps leaders to tell their bosses, listen, this is the amount of effort that is needed to fix this specific right. particular mm-hmm. issue because we show for each problem, for each finding, what is the required effort and what is the actual steps that need to be taken in order to fix it. Right. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. I also like the idea of just having somebody be the owner of the thing, right? And, and I've, I'll tell you, I've been on teams where... So 
I worked at a company in 2012 and their deal was they were dealing with uh, crime data from police police departments. And so, you know, we provided all kinds of tools, right? Here's the heat map, here's the, right? But the thing is, is that the the restrictions on the way that all everything had to be managed was so heavy that, yeah, I mean, they were checking all the packages, you know, the, all this stuff, right? And so something like this to get, at least give them the preliminary, you know, check and make sure that we're in compliance with the law, that, that sounds really nice. But then the other thing is, is that they basically owned security, right? Yeah. And so if something came up and we had to fix it, I mean, they were bird dogging it, right? And then I've worked at other companies where you have DevOps, security team, and developers were all the same people, right? You know, you're a small company, you've just got a handful of people working it. But I still love the idea of having like a security compliance person, right? Somebody who's going to just take ownership and say, I'm either going to fix it or I'm going to help somebody else fix it. But I'm going to make sure that it's right, that somebody's on it. Yeah, it, it need to be. Uh, I, w- I would I wouldn't use the uh, the word forced, but it need to be decided. I mean, in large organization, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's easier, but it's more uh, organized. You have a global entity in many cases that is responsible for product security and right. uh, security and trust organization, and they will decide uh, what is the set of rules that need to be imposed on the entire organization. And uh, a given release will not be approved unless this right. and that uh, things are being met. But the most powerful thing is individuals that are passionate about security. Yeah. And usually, not usually, but many times, what happens is that these inv- these individuals that care about security, that loves to be hackers, <laughs> uh, they, at some point, they are getting the more formal responsibility. Right. Because the organization figure out that they have the knowledge, they like it, they know how to do it. So they are many times being called security champion within the R&D right. or within the CTO office or even se- developer developers within the security teams. I mean, the, the right. other way around. And these are the kind of individuals and people that we are conducting our conversation with because with the management, with the security and R&D DevOps managers, we discuss about the general pain that we would like to solve. Right. But with these ambassadors of security, that love it, that are passionate about security, we have the best time because they see the value of what we're bringing to the table because we automate things that takes hours and days and months in some cases and help solving them almost on the spot. Right. So I guess the other question is, because we kind of talked our way around some of the things that JFrog is offering with X-Ray and then with the advanced security stuff. Is it possible for somebody to do this without the third-party tool? Without third-party tools? Yeah. So could somebody, I mean, I, I guess I could see using a tool like JFrog would make me more effective, but some people just, for whatever reason, they want to do it on their own. Is, is that even possible? Is, is it doable? It's it's possible to do it manually, manually in a in small scale. Okay. I mean, there are parts there are parts of the offering that are covered by niche niche tools. Mm-hmm. Okay, looking specifically for secrets in specific products in Azure or in the AWS right. or in uh, Google. There are open source tools that are doing some things, mm-hmm. but there are things that require manual work, like the exposures, like checking your configuration or how right. you encrypt your data mm-hmm. or how you use TLS. Mm-hmm. or how you configure your operating system or your container. These are things that are beyond just code. Right. Usually they are being identified through a penetration testing or manual mm-hmm. uh, software analysis work. It can be done. We do see organizations that tried to build it themselves. Uh, the more advanced one, especially in the, in the uh, finance uh, sector, mm-hmm. 
They have been investing it heavily in the last uh, half decade, but they understand that it must be part of something bigger, something that right. also manages the, the uh, artifacts, control the assets, that is capable of telling which software asset sits where and doing what, and what are the security implementation uh, or implication of each issue. And for that, you need not uh, you know not not uh, ten AppSec experts. You need hundreds of people that are working on such, right. such a complicated solution. And so they figure out very quickly that they need players such as JFrog, mainly JFrog, to help them solving these, these challenges. I gotcha. The other question that I had was, and you talked about finding somebody on the team that's security-minded, that enjoys it, yeah. things like that. What if you don't have somebody like that? So for, first, I believe that security of software is a, is a compelling topic. I think it is. And when, when we are talking with developers, they, they do want to know more. Uh -huh. They do not like to just get output of scanners telling them to fix 1,000 right. things, but they do want to know mm -hmm. more. They do want to know why someone say that security issue is indeed a security issue. Right. And when you provide the developers and the DevOps engineers with the ability to understand it themselves and to do it themselves, it suddenly becomes a thing they love. Right. Okay? And therefore, I think it's uh, not that complicated to develop this champion. Uh, mm -hmm. to find this uh, passion, to, to create this passionate individual right. within teams, even just, you know, by providing them with access to such solution, let them do the things themselves, let them build the trust in the solution, and they suddenly say, okay, I, I now understand how exploitation of memory corruptions work. Right. I now can explain my partners why they need to fix such things and why mm -hmm. they can postpone other things, and suddenly they become the, the local right. leader. So I think that through education that can be achieved through good security solution, developers and DevOps engineers can really fall, fall in love with this right. and, and become these ambassadors, these champions. Right. It sounds like it's almost a matter of, yeah, just finding somebody who's at least interested in it and then investing in them. Yeah. And, and again, I think it's interesting for almost everyone because it's come, it, it's becoming an, an enabler and an inevitable part of, of yes. coding. Yes. So it's, uh, it's something, you know, it's just like, I don't know if it's a good comparison, but uh, just like an advanced developers and programmers will always try to know about what is the next modern thing, the next modern mm -hmm. language, the next modern architecture. This is the next modern thing. Yeah. Because it's not just a regular burdening uh, security stuff. This is something that helps them do things in a much easier manner. Right. And therefore, I believe they will really love it. That makes sense. The other thing that I was going to ask you is that, and you've kind of implied this more than said it, but I've talked to a number of other people who have effectively said the same thing, and that is that everybody needs to have that security mindset. You've basically actually just said it. But how do you start to instill that into, into developers in general? Because, I mean, developers, whether you're self-taught or you go to college or whatever, they don't train you to think that way, right? They train you to think, there's a problem. I'm going to put together a bunch of logic, and it's going to give me the right answers. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so first, you mentioned the academia and how what did they learn there? And I think believe that Shlomi mentioned earlier today that we finally see the initial steps in academia institutes mm -hmm. of, of covering the cybersecurity implications when when teaching computer science. Right. With each other. So that, that's one. The other thing is that the regulators that were that invest in it heavily make this come top-down in organizations. I don't know, it doesn't mean that a junior engineer that just came in will have the right notion, but very quickly will understand in a, in a good organization that this has to be tackled properly and handled properly because of regulation and because of customers' demand. 
Right. And that's the third thing. I mean, maybe I believe that customer demand is the, uh, the biggest motivation, okay? Mm-hmm. If your customer will get back to you again and again and tell you, you are not secured, you are not secured, fix that, fix this, you have uh, potential zero day here, you have CVE there, you have uh, exposed keys over here, you will, you will suddenly see that you waste half of your time on fixing security issues. Right. And you will want to embrace approach, methodology, and solution that will allow you to solve things before you ship them to your customers. It will build better trust with your customers. It will make you a better developer. Right. And I think that the combination of all three, and of course, good leaderships in the, in the organizations, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, mega events that are happening on a monthly basis, all of them together will, will drive developers, whether junior ones or very senior ones, to have this notion of security and invest in it more. Right. So I guess the last question is, let's say that I'm one of these folks, I'm listening to this and I'm going, you know, security sounds really interesting, right? For whatever reason, whether it's, you know, winning the game, right? And fixing the problems before they show up or whether it's, you know, being able to track down whatever or, you know, I I don't know, you know, being an expert in HIPAA or who knows, you know, but it sounds really, it sounds like something I'm really interested in. Where do I start? That, that's, a, that's a great question. So uh, you can start in the context of what you already do and by mm-hmm. understanding what assets you manage and you control as a DevOps engineer or developer, and then try to find content related to it specifically. Mm-hmm. And here, by the way, our approach is very open, transparent, and clear. We are contributing on a daily basis to the community to educate. We have uh, and they're in research.jfog.com tons of uh, educational uh, uh, articles, very oh, nice. technical ones, and also non-technical ones. It can take you f- uh, from the very high-level starting point of what software supply chain is, mm-hmm. all the way to how exploit uh, zero day that was just released yesterday on Apache. Right. Yeah, and how to create a malicious code. And uh, what is the latest approach of taking over a, a maintainer account by, uh, by attackers. <laughs> so whether you just want to be a hacker because it's nice, or mm-hmm. you want to solve things as early as possible, or you want to be able to conduct this conversation with your colleagues, with the security personas, I mean, a good starting point could be reading the, doc, the, the uh, content in our website, in our research blog. A good starting point would be the regular platform from, uh, you know, to learn online about cybersecurity and approach to uh, SDLC. There is so much, much out there. Right. Uh, that, I mean, unlike 10 years ago when you had to uh, pay a lot to get knowledgeable enough uh, to start exploit stuff. Right. Uh, it's much easier today. And as you said, not only the content that uh, teach the theory is there, but you can just go and download exploit kits and yeah. easily, even for free, and easily to start just exploit CVEs in the wild. So, uh, so it's easy than before. I welcome everyone to visit our website. It's a good uh, starting point. Everything for free, of course. Right. Uh, yeah, I love it. All right. Well, if people want to learn more, you mentioned research.jfrog.com, but Correct. you know, is there a place they can connect with you or? Yeah, so uh, it's through the website clearly, or just by sending in, in, in from a request to info at jfrog.com or security at jfrog.com to get more information. And we are very, very responsive. Mm-hmm. If there is a specific interest in specific CVE or specific new threats or specific new trends, reach out to our uh, security arm, to our security division, and specifically the research arm through the website. We would love to provide and help with education, to provide any information and help with education. Cool. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Nati. This was really fun. Thanks, Charles. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just 
I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question, and then we'll just rotate people through. So we'll we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on Gather Town. And so after the the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. Hey, folks, I'm still here at Swamp Up. I'm talking to Yoav Landman. Did I say that right? Yeah, perfect. Yeah, we've talked to a few folks from who with the name Yoav. They're from Israel, usually. Tel Aviv. That's an Israeli name. <laughs> Is it? Yoav? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, one of my co-hosts for JavaScript Jabber is from Tel Aviv. And so he brings all his tech friends on. And <laughs> Anyway, so yeah. But yeah, so you, you talked today, you talked about a number of different things. But one of the things you talked about was the JFrog Connect. And I think one of the things that we don't talk about as much on Adventures in DevOps is IoT and kind of the, the edge stuff, right? And, and how that all works. Uh, we also got a demo from Shlomi. Or I was that you? Demo. You yeah. gave the demo? Uh, I'm, it's yeah, all a blur. It's, it's late. <laughs> but anyway, so, so yeah, you gave the demo with the touch screen and... <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And and, updating your software live on... Uh, yeah. And so I, I just kind of wanted to talk about that be, because typically what you when we're talking about DevOps, we're, we're like into Kubernetes or some cloud setup or, you know, something like that. And it's like, okay, well, what about these little devices that are out there in the world, right? Yeah, and and how do you manage all that? So, so you want to just give kind of a an elevator pitch, I guess, for for JFrog Connect, and then we can kind of talk through how it works and what yeah. it offers. Yeah, but maybe before these devices, uh, they are not so weak anymore. I mean, the, right. the compute is getting more and more intensive, more and more demanding. So you actually start seeing devices running Docker containers, even devices mm-hmm. running. Uh, K3S uh, or similar yep. Kubernetes uh, clusters. Uh, what JFO Connect does is, and you, you touched on it when you spoke about the DevOps uh, pipeline, it connects this beautifully architected pipeline all the way to the device. So normally yep. the, the devices are siloed. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually spoke to some of, uh, of the customers uh, uh, here at the conference and they reaffirmed this, uh, this is the reality for them. When you say siloed, what do you mean? that you have this nice pipeline for creating your software and uh-huh. validating it, securing it and everything. And then you end up with a binary. Now, this binary may be just uh, some 
some zip files, some mm-hmm. targe zip. It may be even a Helm chart with uh, Docker containers it references. But when you actually have to go and deploy it, you cut the chain from your original DevOps pipeline. You mm-hmm. no longer have this uh, uh, visibility to how your software was created. If you need to recall your software, if you need to update it for some reason, or as a, on a regular basis, this DevOps loop is being cut, you end up with a bunch of files and a bunch of scripting that somebody else in the organization have to run, mm-hmm. has to run in order to uh, create the deep. So yeah, this is what I mean by siloed. So, so yes, you've got these machines that are, yeah, they're sort of disconnected from the process. They're hard to reach. They're hard to reach. There are many. Mm-hmm. So people tend to kind of disregard it because they mostly think of the startups that are doing IoT as, uh, well, maybe they don't know how to handle production. But mm-hmm. in a way, you're managing a fleet of production servers that in a normal situation, it's probably much louder than you would manage in any small, medium company. Right. Uh, when you have like... Uh, three, five, maybe 20 production servers, mm-hmm. all of a so- sudden you have 2,000 or, or even more. Right. So, and these devices, uh, yeah, they are unreachable in many cases. They may be installed at the bottom of the la- of a lake, maybe attached to a tree. There are devices that are mm-hmm. preventing a wood fire that are right. really in the forest, maybe on a cell tower. That's also very common uh, with our customers. Yeah. And maybe on a, maybe on a combat vehicle sometime. Uh, so, <laughs> I love so that, that example. That example. Yeah. <laughs> and you can imagine they don't have any, they do not accept any incoming connection, of course. Uh-huh. You need to be extra careful not to break them when you run the update. So you need right. like an external process that is super protected against right. uh, any failure so that it can roll back mm-hmm. to, to the stable version of the software. Otherwise, you have to send somebody to, to reach uh, the device physically. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I've done that. Not not on a combat vehicle, but I have upgraded things by sticking the USB key into it. <laughs> that's, uh, believe it or not, that's still a very, very common practice. Yeah. And many devices were designed not to be updated. Um, yeah. As a, in the beginning, from a security perspective, as a rule of thumb, you don't get to update the device unless we send you right. a technician with a stick. Well, well, that makes sense. I mean, the the secure the the most secure way to not have it hacked is to not have it connected to the internet. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So so I, I understand that. So so what does JFrog Connect actually do for you then, if it's air gapped or unreachable or hard to get to or whatever? Well, if it's fully air gapped, there are very few systems that are right. fully air gapped. But even if it's fully air gapped, we would allow you to build the DevOps uh, pipeline on the air gapped uh, environment. So you will be able to oh, interesting. get an on-prem type of installation as, as we do with all the JFong, JFong mm-hmm. platform uh, products. Uh, Connect is not not there yet, but it's, it's getting mm-hmm. there. And like I said, most systems are not fully air gapped. Right. I, I know of very little systems that that like that. In embedded devices, it's still quite common to have uh, air gap systems in right. factories and uh, in more protected uh, domains and so on. But yeah, even then we can solve the, the problem mm-hmm. of making sure that when you build and run your software update pipeline, you can automate it all the way through the device. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So if it's not, let, let's say that it's it's not connected to the internet all the time, right? So, so then what do you do? Because I can't just SSH to it. Of course, you kind of demonstrated it here, right? Yeah. So the, there are two problems. First of all, if it's not connected all the time, you wouldn't be able even to, right. to open the reverse tunnel to SSH. Right. So with the, the remoting, we solve the problem of being able to connect to a device, even though it's not listening on a port by 
opening a reverse right. tunnel. The other problem is that device may uh, come on and off and mm-hmm. for, for on the on the grid on the on the network, and you still need to provision updates to them whenever they are connected. Right. And connect solves this problem, so the update will wait. When the device comes online, he will see that it needs to to get updated, and he will pull the update automatically. Report back to to connect. One of the nice things is that um, as part of looking at your fleet of devices, you can also see if they are currently running a vulnerable software. And right. that's quite unique because in a way, in the IoT world, you have a very closed loop system. So mm-hmm. you, con- you fully control the deployment also, mm-hmm. which allows you to know exactly what you put on the device. And if there is a change in the state of the vulnerabilities for what you put there, the Jeffhook platform will let you know and, right. and we will alert you about that. Yeah, I had a good talk with Nati about how that all, you know, the security piece yeah. works. And yeah, it's interesting that, yeah, you tie it into this and then, yeah, it's like, hey, this is, you know, this is there. Okay, now it's a big deal, right? Yeah. It's, it's going to break your stuff or make you vulnerable to, you know, attack or whatever. Yeah. And that dashboard was real nice because, it, yeah, it made it real easy to see what was going on with all of the devices. So it's like, hey, uh, we've been waiting three weeks for this one to check in, right, and get the update, and it's not getting online. It, it gave you that visible, okay, I need to figure out what's going on with these or Correct. whatever. And then, yeah, with the reverse tunnel SSH, that, that, was, that was slick. Yeah. It's, but it's more, uh, more than a feature set. It's, uh, right. it's, it's actually this vision that devices are going to get stronger and stronger. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we have customers that are running Kubernetes on these devices. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a gateway that controls... Uh, They're running m- Kubernetes on these devices? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They have uh, K3S running on devices. They're getting updates. They're actually deploying Helm charts with, uh, oh, wow. with containers. And containers is super uh, common on devices yeah. today. To be honest, mostly we Docker Compose still, but uh-huh. that's changing. So they are getting the devices themselves are getting uh, are becoming more powerful. So they can run software that that you can run on on a normal desktop. Uh, uh-huh. So that's not uncommon at all. Software is getting more complicated. Microservice deployments. By the way, as a, also a matter of uh, mitigating risk uh, by the fact that you don't need to do a like, big mega ball of, uh, of an update. You can just deploy a single microservice. You don't have a monolith that you have to send. Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If you're running Kubernetes, yeah, you just update the pieces you need updated. Exactly. So that's coming to devices as well. And also, mm-hmm. we say devices and we say IoT, but the edge is, uh, I mean, something that runs in your production and your production is located on an edge server remotely mm-hmm. where processing needs to happen closer to clients is also a very common use case. Right. Uh, we see it a lot with AI. Mm-hmm. So many devices are actually very powerful devices that can analyze whether it's a person that uh, you see in the camera or, and then they don't need to alert. Uh, it's very common. Uh, yeah. No, that makes that makes sense too. And I was just thinking, you know, some of the IoT, for lack of a better way of putting it, that I have in my home are just the Amazon Echoes and stuff like that, right? And so I can imagine, you know, things that do any number of things, right? Your smart fridges, your whatever, you know, yeah, just having these capabilities where you could conceivably have, yeah. you know, for your business applications, right? You have all of these smart devices, you know, managing all kinds of things, whether it's agricultural or mechanical or, yeah. you, know, I, you know, you could you could have smart IoT traffic lights. I mean, who knows, right? 
but the city could manage all of that stuff with with something like this. Yeah. So uh, the funny thing, it varies so dramatically between solutions, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's endless. So we have customers that are managing coffee machines with uh, mm-hmm. with our solution. We have customers that are managing combat vehicles with our right. solution. We have customers that are training dogs or mm-hmm. making or, or solving agricultural problems with uh, with devices. Yep. So it's it doesn't end this uh, yep. kind of thing. So let's say well, first of all, let me back up a little bit and go to what kinds of customers, right? Because I'm doing web development. I'm teaching people how to write code. So I would use this to kind of say, hey, if you're deploying a fleet of these things, you might want to look at this product, but then I might demo it. But what companies are a good, a good match for uh, JFrog Connect? Like, how, how do you know, oh, that, that's a solution that would work for me? First of all, if you have a fleet of devices that are running on edge, uh, in edge locations, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the first uh, okay. place you would want to use us. So, Is there a particular size you're geared toward or is it just anybody? If you have five of them, you might want it. So currently we're supporting any Linux-based uh, distro. Mm-hmm. So whether it's uh, as small as Yocto devices or Debian, Ubuntu, Red Hat, uh, whatever, uh, on most architectures. So in terms of solution, in terms of size, we would scale to, to a very large number of, uh, okay. of fleets. So th- there is virtually there is no uh, limit that, uh, that is currently known that right. the solution can uh, fit for. And it's a journey. It's a, it's a different journey, by the way, than uh, traditional software. But I believe this, w- this will also change over time because when you start developing a regular application, you deploy to production quite quickly. Mm-hmm. But with devices, since you have the physical need to go and install the device somewhere or for somebody to actually pay and buy the device, if you're also selling the, the hardware, the pickup is, uh, is a lot lower. It, uh, it takes much more time to, for the adoption to occur. Mm-hmm. And then normally it, it can be a hockey stick. Right. And we don't see that that much with regular software. I yeah. mean, if you have an application... Probably by even I mean I mean even the the horizontal scaling is not something that you need to to care about mm-hmm. and so yeah as a as a developer you don't care too much about the auto, the auto scaling it's just happening right in the background and you don't have to care about provisioning external resources no that makes total sense I mean yeah. like I said I'm a web developer and I mostly just care where where do my uh, resources float right but with IoT you're talking about deploying by device. Exactly. So there are two problems. First of all, your hardware, you have to plan for hardware capacity Uh like you did in the old days. Right. That's the first thing. The other thing is that you're going to see an uptake of your software that uh, is is less predictable. Mm -hmm. Your production fleet, so to speak, is going to change in a very different way than what you used to see on a regular cloud-native deployment right. or, or something like that. Yeah, so it, it comes with a different set of uh, problems, but it's uh, it's very common. I mean, having yeah. to run software closer to the client on devices that are local, this is the reality today. And it's uh, yeah. it's just uh, it's just going. Well, I think we're just going to see more and more. Absolutely. Yeah. And they're they're gonna they're gonna become integrated more and more places in our society, and it's just the way it's going to go. Fully agree. There, there is a, by, by the way, other aspects that are maybe not related to what Connect does, but uh, when you think about uh, a device that is connected, like your Echo device, mm-hmm. there are a lot of privacy concerns that you have right. to think about. So, as a software developer, you have to think about 
what kind of data I need to send to the cloud anonymized. How can I manage a session? So if you speak to your device and mm -hmm. you're in the middle of a conversation with him, when do you decide to time out this session? How do you make sure that it doesn't mix replies from other sessions? Right. Uh, but mostly what kind of information you're sharing with the cloud, mm -hmm. what kind of information you're processing on the device itself. And this privacy actually is a factor that drives more power to the device itself. Mm -hmm. Because if you can update the device and you can update the AI that runs on the device, you can do much more and you lower the complexity of your software than right. if you have to sanitize it, send it to the cloud, use to the cloud, use some sort of uh, opaque identifiers mm -hmm. in order not to expose who the user that was asking the question right. was. So that's it's a very interesting domain, I think. Yeah, definitely. So uh, what's coming next for JFrog Connect? So for, for JFrog Connect, I mentioned that there's going to be an on-prem version. There are some things I cannot fully speak about, still a public company, so... Uh, <laughs> but we are, we are going to expose more features about the, the visibility of what's going on in your software. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th this is, I'm afraid, all I can say about uh, what we're planning ahead. And you're going to see much more... Uh, we're going to up the, uh, the level of integration with the rest of the JFrog platform. So to give you a, a very smooth and uh, transparent experience as a software developer, as a, as a DevOps engineer developing software for the edge. In essence, we're seeing a convergence of software development. We spoke with Nati, so in security, in uh, IoT or device-based development, everything is being put because of automation in the hands of the people who are in charge of building the automation pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, so they are getting more and more power to control security. Of course, they are advised by CISOs, but they are getting the, the they are becoming the focal point of controlling security, controlling deployments, which in the past were were done by an OT team. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to disappear. Right. You cannot have an automation and break it by introducing organizational structures that are, are fighting this automation. So we're going to see an industry change uh, all around. I think. Nice. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it. Okay. And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now 
for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The the full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. Now, if somebody, let's say they already have a fleet of IoT devices out there and they're thinking, this sounds really helpful. Let's put this in as part of our DevOps pipeline. How do they get started? Especially if these devices are already out in the world. First of all, very easy. Go to jeffhook.com. From there, you will get to uh-huh. Jeffhook Connect. Uh, we have plans that allow you to get virtual devices and pay a very uh, affordable amount for... Uh, I think we even have a, a free plan, but I don't, I, I don't uh, remember uh, exactly. But uh, uh-huh. you will be able to test your update flows and workflow on virtual devices. Mm-hmm. And then as you move towards production, so this is like a natural evolution of... Uh, of software development for devices. As you move towards production, you upgrade towards real devices with more features. But when you just begin and you have a pre-production environment, it's actually called like that in the mm-hmm. in the uh, plans for uh, Connect. You can get a pre-production uh, right. stage level of uh, in-development offering. Once, once you're ready to go to production, do you have to get physical access to the device in order to install the agent? Or Yeah, normally for these companies, the, the phase where you meet production is where you actually deploy devices in production that you care about their identity. Mm-hmm. So before production, normally it's a development environment. Device identity is something which is uh, mostly transient. You don't right. care. You just uh, spin up uh, yeah. another either physical or virtual device. Physical is still very important because mm-hmm. you want to test on the real hardware. Right. But you don't. it's not a customer that you need to, uh, as, as a developer, it's, you right. don't care about the identity of the device in the real world, which is very different uh, than in production. Then you, you care a lot about the identity of the device, uh, how you initialized it, mm-hmm. how uh, you registered it according to your security protocols of uh, authenticating a device. Right. Uh, maybe so, you, you want to blacklist it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody stole a bunch of devices that uh, right. fell off a truck and uh, you know the batch number, mm-hmm. you want to uh, blacklist the, those devices. So Connect allows you, it supports those type of uh, right. developments. And so getting the, I guess getting the agent on existing devices is just down to the level of access you have on them. Only in production. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, this stuff's so fascinating. I could sit here and ask <laughs> questions all day. Is there anything else that I didn't bring up about Connect that you wanted to go over? I think we pretty much covered it all. I mean, the, the main message is that we are bridging this uh, gap mm-hmm. between DevOps and, uh, and traditional legacy IoT development right. and allowing you now to have uh, the automation go the full way from your yeah. uh, workspace all the way to, to, to a device in production, really. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really the selling point, right? Because, you know, if you if you want to, you can go and you can kind of manage all of this stuff yourself. But then you've got to make sure that all of the infrastructure that supports it is in place, that it's stable, that it's secure. And in this case, you just do all that for, for me. And so all I have to do is install your agent on the device, make sure the code does what it's supposed to and that it's secure. 
Right. And, and, then, and you're going to discover a lot of things as, as you go along. And right. I, I think we're going to save you a lot of the hassle. That, that's we, the whole we point. We just spent like the, yeah. the last 10 minutes speaking about how nuanced this uh, type of development is. Yeah. IoT developers know that, and yep. uh, this requires a special solution. But when you build this special special solution, you still want it to be fully connected. Hence, the, yeah. no pun intended, but uh, yep. fully connected to to your uh, development environment, to your DevOps pipeline. Cool. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. Thanks, Yoav. This was awesome. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.